This is the Book of Mormon, Digging Deeper. I'm your host, Mark Swint. in previous episodes heard me express my feelings about the doctrine of the Trinity. I have always thought that it is the single doctrine that most effectively separates us from our Father in Heaven. However, today I think we should take a deeper look at that doctrine, its origins, the changes made to it, and its effect on Christianity in these modern times. I hope you will stick around. Let's begin with Genesis. The very first chapter of Genesis discusses the creation of man, and I think it's pretty clear from what was written there that humans were not, are not, a random design. Verse 26 and 27 state, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. In these two verses, the Lord says four times, in our image or in the image of God. That seems pretty clear to me. The book of Moses in the Pearl of Great Price is even clearer. It says, And I, God, said unto mine only begotten, which was with me from the beginning, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And it was so. And I, God, created man in mine own image. In the image of mine only begotten created I him. Male and female created I them. In both these sets of verses, the scripture states that we are made in his image, and then to be clear, it adds, after our likeness. Now, not only are the scriptures clear about this, but the statement agrees with nature and with all life around us. Every living thing that was born, hatched, or germinated upon this earth was brought forth in the image of that which created it. The acorn grows to become an oak. The puppy grows to become a dog. Children grow to become like their mother and father who created them. All things become like that which created them. So it only stands to reason that we should be like the parents who created us, both the earthly parents who gave us physical bodies and the heavenly parents who bore our spirits. Further proof should be found in the admonition for us to become like our Heavenly Father. 
Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. I would submit that the call to become like the Father would only be complete if we ultimately, literally, become like him. So why is this so hard to understand? It seems so obvious, and yet the world has a vastly different view of God and Jesus and the Holy Ghost. Now certainly in times past and among ancient cultures, the nature of God was a mystery to people. He was represented in everything from the sun, the earth itself, storms and tempests, earthquakes, and even volcanoes. There were sun gods and rain gods and various animal gods and gods of fertility. And rituals were created to worship, appease, implore, and mollify these various gods. Charon, the ferryman of Hades, who took souls down to their condemnation. Hesperus, the god of the evening star, which was Venus. Phosphorus, god of the morning star, also Venus. How about Demos, god of fear, or Zephyrus, god of the west wind? Well, it goes on and on, but you get the idea. Lots of gods for lots of different reasons and needs. Genesis indicates, though, to us that the very earliest fathers, from Adam all the way to Abraham, understood the true nature of Heavenly Father, their one true God. Monotheism, it is called. But the world at large took a polytheistic route. That means many gods. I guess it was more fun to have lots of gods. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, the earliest known instance of monotheism dates to the 14th century BC in Egypt. What a coincidence. That is exactly when Moses brought the children of Israel out from under Pharaoh's grasp. And it was during this time that Moses received the apocalyptic vision of the creation and wrote the five books of the Pentateuch, which start with the book of Genesis. Moses reintroduced monotheism to the children of Israel, and it took root, eventually, in the three main religions of the world, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. But monotheism was tricky. Now, for the Muslims, it was a clear case of confessing one eternal, unbegotten, unequaled God. Allah, they called him. But that's just Arabic for God. For the Jews, it was a bit trickier, with both Elohim and Jehovah. But that was worked out by acknowledging that Elohim was the formal title of God, while Yahweh was his personal name. For the Christians, though, it was a bit more problematic. During Christ's early ministry, it was made apparent that there was a Father to whom Christ prayed, and a Holy Ghost, or Holy Spirit, the one who came down and sat on the Lord's shoulder in the form of a dove at the time of his baptism. From that time on, baptisms were commanded to be done in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, which indicated that there were three entities. But then there were also the Savior's own words when he said, I and the Father are one, and also, I am the Father and the Son. Additionally, prophecies of Isaiah in particular, but other Old Testament prophets as well, indicated that there was only one God, and that that God would come down and save his people. Isaiah 66 says, The Lord will come down like a whirlwind with his flaming chariots. And 1 Thessalonians says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. 
So how did the Christian world deal with this apparent conundrum? Was there one God or three? Were Christians monotheistic or, accidentally, polytheistic? Fair questions. There is no real evidence that the earliest church leaders struggled with this question, but that changed with the Romans. In 313 AD, the emperor Constantine issued the Edict of Milan, which officially accepted Christianity. Ten years later, it became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now, it took a while for this formerly outlawed movement to fully develop as a functional creed upon which Roman daily life would revolve, but as it did, it quickly became apparent that various Christian leaders from around the empire had significant differences of opinions as to the doctrines and beliefs of the faith. Accordingly, in 325 AD, Constantine convened an ecumenical council in Nicaea, which today is Islic in the land of Turkey, or by its new name now, Turkia, with the mandate to come up with a unified, universal, or Catholic, doctrine upon which all could rely for guidance and belief. These Nicene doctrines were to cover every imaginable subject for which religion could have any bearing, and even those that seemed perhaps outside religious theology. Subjects such as, what was the sun? Or did the air go all the way to and through space? What were the stars? And was the earth the center of the universe? Well, the various priests and teachers were not trained natural philosophers, as early scientists were called, and they did not have hard answers for many of the issues, but they did their best to reason out, or argue out as the case might be, to the best of their understanding, answers to all of these and life's other questions. Most of the basic theological questions were not too tough to reach a consensus on. Things like the nature of sin, heaven and hell. They were really good on hell. And the creation. Was it six days or not? The various sacraments and other holy rites and an order of worship were worked out. They were able to formalize the worship rites or masses without too much trouble. But they hit a snag when trying to codify and define a unified belief in the nature of God, Jesus, and the Holy Ghost. This issue, in fact, became the most hotly contested and debated issue of the council. And in the end, the vote came down to a very narrow, you know, 51 to 49 type resolution. The problem was that the scriptures spoke a great deal about the gods, but in seemingly contradictory terms. And to accept one philosophy was to ignore a number of scriptural references to the contrary. For example, we read at the beginning of the podcast from Genesis the following, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then in Acts 7, the Apostle Stephen declares, and behold, I saw the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. From the Savior's baptism in Matthew 3, we read, and Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. These verses clearly indicate that there were distinct entities, 
the Savior standing on the right hand of God, the Savior coming out of the water with the Holy Ghost alighting on him, and the voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. So many scriptures show that the Father and the Son were separate beings. Throughout John, there are numerous declarations revealing their nature. In chapter 14, Jesus says, In my Father's house, and he says, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, who the Father will send in my name. In the next verse, he says, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. But wait, proclaimed the other half of the council, how do we deal with the scriptures from that same chapter that say, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father? Or, Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. And then in John 10 is the most declarative. Jesus simply says, I and my Father are one. Though the Nicene Council did not have the benefit of the Book of Mormon, I would remind you that even that book presents the same conundrum. In Mosiah 15, we have Abinadi speaking to King Noah, and he says, And because he dwells in the flesh, he shall be called the Son of God, and having subjected himself to the will of the Father, being the Father and the Son, the Father, because he was conceived by the power of God, and the Son, because of the flesh, thus becoming the Father and the Son. And then even more directly in the book of Ether, we read the Lord's own words to the brother of Jared when he said, Behold, I am he who was prepared from the foundation of the world to redeem my people. Behold, I am Jesus Christ. I am the Father and the Son. It was this paradox of apparently contradictory scriptures that confused the council at Nicaea, and they debated it mightily. They wanted the one god of monotheism, but they apparently had the three gods of polytheism. Well, the priests and early fathers of the church struggled as they attempted to understand the relationship between Jesus and God. The edict to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost made it clear that the Holy Ghost was to be included in the ruling powers of heaven. And if they did acknowledge that there were three gods, then they would be denying the monotheism that differentiates scriptural theology from the polytheism of the great unwashed and heathen nations. There were just too many scriptures that referenced the one true God of the universe. So it seemed the only solution was to declare that the three gods were really one God manifested in three distinct beings. Had it been left there, the Christian world might have been okay, because on the face of it, that doctrine was not completely wrong. There are, in fact, three gods who act as one and it would have been relatively easy in future years to clarify that definition. Had the council decided that there was a ruling Godhead, or first presidency of the universe, and that this presidency was composed of three members totally united in purpose and intent, then this whole controversy could have been avoided. But they didn't. And for some reason, later clergy decided that the only way the Trinity could exist was to accept that this assemblage of gods could exist only as an amorphous cloud 
of intent without purpose. Of course, this completely disregarded Moses' assertions that we were made in God's own image and likeness. So, on the face of it, this Trinitarian doctrine seemed to be the best bad solution, and so it was adopted and accepted by all the religious leaders of the time. Today, the doctrine of the Trinity is the central doctrine concerning the nature of God in almost all Christian churches, and it appears quite differently from the way it left the Council at Nicaea. It defines one God existing in three co-equal, co-eternal, consubstantial divine persons. It is important to point out, however, that neither the word Trinity nor the explicit doctrine ever appeared in the New Testament. Now, as I said, the way it was originally defined was not necessarily wrong. And had the doctrine been left at that without further definition, we could have worked with that. And, as with so many other doctrines, rather than negating the beliefs so many held with the revealed fullness of the gospel, we could have simply clarified and expanded their definition, and thus the face of those same multitudes. But sadly, that was not to be. There is a document called the 1689 Second London Baptist Convention of Faith, which attempted to further define the Trinity. I'm not sure why, but to my mind this was totally unnecessary and only served to dramatically alter the very notion of just what God is and man's relationship to him, or to it, or to whatever they imagined. It is very long with many chapters and lots of paragraphs, but it has been summarized by later Christian leaders who think it a marvelous document. It says unambiguously, The Lord our God is but one only living and true God without body, parts, or passions. It includes the doctrine of impassibility, which is that divine attribute whereby God is said not to experience inner emotional changes, whether enacted freely from within or affected by his relationship to and interaction with human beings and the created order. Chapter 2 of that document clearly lays out their concept of the nature and being of God. It says, and I quote, the Lord our God is but one only living true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who is immutable, immense, and eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will, for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most terrible and just in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. And to this, let me add one more summation from a theologian named Paul Helms. He said, speaking of this document, the other thing that might strike us is in the including of without passions. Why single out the exclusion of passions? 
without a body and without parts seems to be more manageable. We know that God is pure spirit and does not have hands and feet, and thus does not have parts. This does not quite say at all, however. God is not only without bodily parts, he is also without temporal parts. He does not have a yesterday or a tomorrow. I always thought that it was the original Nicene doctrine of the Trinity that most steered Christians away from the true understanding of the nature of our Heavenly Father. But upon further research and by studying this document, I realized that here was where most of the damage was done. I don't know how the men who drafted this document could have come up with such nonsense, and I can only reason that this was Satan's most glorious victory in his fight against the Father. For this single document changed the whole of Christendom and almost completely removed the possibility of humans ever feeling truly part of a heavenly family. We could have lived with the early doctrine of the Trinity, as I said. Indeed, as Latter-day Saints, we believe in three gods who act as one, with one mind and one goal. As missionaries, we could have taken this basic doctrine and expanded it to let people see how the heavens were governed. Our three-member first presidency and our three-member bishoprics and three-member branch presidencies are earthly corollaries of the celestial government. No, the original doctrine of the Trinity was not bad so much as it was incomplete, and it was this incompleteness that left the door open for such ridiculous interpretations as what we read in the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Let me disassemble it for you a bit. That first sentence, the Lord our God is but one only living true God whose subsistence is in and of himself infinite in being and perfection. That's okay by itself. We too believe that God truly is infinite in being and perfection. But he is to be sure a glorified and exalted man of perfect form and stature who was once as we are now and has promised that we may become someday as he is now. It's the next phrase that goes off the rails. It says, a most pure spirit invisible without body, parts, or passions. Here we see a most contradictory statement. First of all, how did they determine that he had no body, no parts? Do we not read over and over about the right hand of God? In the New Testament alone, there are 12 references to sitting on the right hand of God. In Luke 22, it says, Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of God. And in Acts 7, it says, And I said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. References to God's body parts are found throughout the scriptures. Here in Second Chronicles, we have hands and a mouth. It says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who hath with his hands fulfilled that which he spake with his mouth to my father David. There's references to his feet. In Exodus it says, And they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. There are also references to his eyes, to his ears, and arms, and face. But you get the idea. The notion of no body or parts is without foundation and foolishness. 
And I wonder just how that document could claim that God had no passions. The references to his anger, vengeance is mine, and also to his joy and his incomparable love for his children are found throughout all the scriptures about him. One of the most popular verses in the Christian world is John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Then we get to this next part of that statement uh, that says, Whose essence cannot be comprehended, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible. Nowhere in the original statement of the Holy Trinity do I find any of that. The scriptures are clear that we are to strive to become like God. Consider the following. From John 17, it says this, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. In the epistle of 1 John, we read, And we know that the Son of God has come, and hath given us an understanding that we may know him. That is true. This is the true God and eternal life. And then how about Matthew 5? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. It seems clear to me that we are tasked with the challenge to become like our Heavenly Father. And yet in order to do that, we must know him. We must understand who he is and the nature of his being. We must know how he is in order to become like him. It's a simple concept and should be self-evident to all who take the time to ponder that. Then in complete contradiction to what they have just declared, the framers of this confession state, for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. These seem to be remarkably generous for one who supposedly has no passions. And then it goes on. In keeping with the statement that he is merciful, it declares, Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. But in the next phrase, it turns against that very thought. It says, Most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. I guess one would have to wonder about the contradiction of first having no passions and then being most loving and merciful and then being terrible in his judgments and one who will by no means clear the guilty. I would ask, to whom does one extend mercy except to someone who is guilty? And to state that he is forgiving of iniquity, transgression, and sin as it stated just prior to this last statement, how can he by no means clear the guilty, while at the same time be forgiving of iniquity, transgression, and sin? You see how confusing all of this is to good people all over the world, who simply want to have a God to turn to for strength and hope, and for a sense of belonging to a greater family? Now, I have only highlighted just a few paragraphs of a very long document, which goes on like this for many chapters and pages. But the predicament is clear. How can we love and draw near to and become like a God who is incomprehensible and in no way like us or even the potential us? This makes no sense 
And to my mind, it is no wonder that so many people choose to not believe at all. I used to think poorly of atheists and agnostics, but I have come to realize that in many cases they are just very logical people who have determined that the Christian story, as presented by most of the Christian churches in the world, makes no sense at all and is filled with contradictions and impossible concepts that no one could follow, except by looking only very shallowly and without commitment. If I'm told that there is a God who loves me and he sent his son to rescue me and all I have to do is believe in him and be good and go to heaven, then I'm okay, as long as I don't ask any deeper questions. But if I do ask deeper questions, I may just be told, as I was as a kid, these are the mysteries of godliness and you just have to have faith. In my mind, the doctrine of Trinity, as interpreted centuries later, has become the single greatest obstacle to people actually trying to become like God. It has removed us from any familiar connection or feeling of belonging. How can I, for example, feel that I am a son of a God? First of all, it doesn't even mention a heavenly mother, but we'll just stick with heavenly father. How can I feel that I am a son of God? without body, parts, or passions. What about that makes me his son? I could be a creation of a God like that, but certainly not a son. And how am I to become like something that is apparently incomprehensible and whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself? It just makes no sense. These same Christian ideologies today deny any sort of a pre-existence for man. We did not come from somewhere. We simply came into existence with our mortal births. So how could God be my father? And if they claim that he is my father, then where is my heavenly mother? Now against all this, we have the plan of salvation. It is a beautiful and amazingly simple and elegant plan. We were born to parents in a heavenly realm, a heavenly mother and a heavenly father, who raised us with love and purity. They understood and taught us that in order to progress farther and to become fully like them, we needed to come to an earth, if only for a little while, just a few hours in celestial time, to be tested, to gain a physical body, and to get experience that would bring wisdom and understanding to the lessons that we had learned in heaven. With that wisdom and understanding, and with a physical body that would eventually be raised to immortality and glory, we can then go back to become like our heavenly parents and continue our journey through the eternities and the heavens. We can become like they are now. Satan's story, the one put forth by the current interpretation of the doctrine of the Trinity, does exactly the opposite. In it, we are promised a resurrection of our bodies to their perfect and proper form, but if we are to become like this God, this Heavenly Father we cannot comprehend, then we must obviously put off those bodies once again and become the same sort of non-corporeal amorphous cloud without passions, or hands, or feet. 
Apparently, if you carry the logic of the doctrine of the Trinity to its logical conclusion, that is exactly what the Savior must have done after his resurrection. Now, he made a point of assuring his disciples that he was truly resurrected when he appeared to them, and he said, Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. And yet, according to the modern doctrine of the Trinity, we are asked to believe that the Savior died, laid down his body, and took it up again three days later, this time in glory and immortality. But then, if we believe the doctrine, he must have laid it down again, abandoned it, in order to once more become part of that three-part God cloud without body, parts, or passions. That just doesn't make sense to me. Why would he lay down a perfected and immortal body? And why would it need to be immortal? And if that is true, then why is the resurrection such a big deal in the scriptures? Starting with the Old Testament, we read in Job, Though this body be destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. And in Ezekiel we read, I will open your graves and cause you to come up. In the New Testament, we see a fulfillment of these prophecies. Matthew 27 says, And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. And that promise was made to all. 1 Corinthians states, There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differeth from another star in glory. So also the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. And the scriptures are full of promises of resurrection for all of us. Too many to list. But I ask you, what is to be made of these in light of the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, and more specifically, the Second Baptist Confession of Faith, which again, I only mention because it is now the generally accepted statement on faith of the overwhelming body of Christian churches. I guess the question is, do we resurrect or don't we? Did Jesus resurrect in immortality or didn't he? You see, if you dig deep enough, you see the flaws in all this reasoning, and you can begin to see why it is so hard for so many people to really let the gospel guide their lives. For far too many, the church is a nice traditional exercise to be carried out on Sunday mornings, but for the rest of the week, life goes on its own designated path. I don't know about you, but that's not for me. And for the life of me, I cannot see how this mortal existence would in any way lead me to that. Some might think I'm picking on this traditional Christian foundational idea, but for me it's personal. It hurts me to see my friends, people I love, people I work with, wander through this life without the encouragement and guidance the gospel can provide because of confusing and foolish doctrines perpetuated by Satan himself. I hope for and prefer to live by the notion set forth in John 8, verse 32, which says, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. I am so grateful for the plan of salvation. I am grateful for the missionaries that long ago taught me 
that my spirit was born of heavenly parents who loved me and sent me to earth to gain a physical body from my earthly parents so that I could continue on my journey through the eternities, equipped with the tools I would need to become like my heavenly parents and go on to my eventual exaltation with my lovely eternal companion. I am grateful that this knowledge allowed me to continue on believing in God and Jesus and the Holy Ghost as I matured and that this knowledge and these principles guide my actions today. I am grateful for my testimony that God lives and loves you and me. And I am grateful for the knowledge that you and I are brothers and sisters, siblings in a royal and heavenly family. And I leave this testimony with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.